When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Dan Charnas to discuss his book, Dilla Time, about hip-hop genius Jay Dilla. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're welcoming back Dan Charnas to talk about his new book, Dilla Time, The Life and Afterlife of Jay Dilla, the hip-hop producer who reinvented rhythm. So, Dan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. Yeah, and I've been, uh, this is the, the Let It Roll book of the year, hands down, no contest, maybe the Let It Roll book of the decade. Me and a couple of the dorks who are the most obsessed with what we're working on in this project we've been abuzz about this book and you've compared jay dilla's achievements to louis armstrong and james brown who to students of american musical history are at the absolute top of the pantheon louis armstrong introduced the concept of swing a new way of doing rhythm into american pop music and james brown converted bands into polyrhythmic units where each member of a funk band played a different rhythm something that you would see in like an af Afro-Cuban drum chorus. When you first told me that you were comparing Jay Dilla to these guys, I was like, that is a bold case. Why do you make that claim? Well, uh, the thing that the, the, those two folks you mentioned, Louis Armstrong and James Brown, have in common is that they really transformed our way of thinking about musical time and our, our disposition toward rhythm. Uh, and though there, I think there are other folks in our pantheon that have done uh, similar things like Billie Holiday or Prince. I think, you know, Louis Armstrong really, really uh, pioneered this swing feeling, uh, this uneven feeling of unevenness in our rhythms 
um, that makes it sort of a, a, a an integral part of our popular music. Uh, James Brown's dislocation of the center of gravity towards what we call the one uh, in our popular music not only informs funk, but R&B and soul and rock uh, and pop and even some country music. Uh, it's ubiquitous, not just restricted to one genre. And, you know, we really did not have another great rhythmic innovation until Jay Dilla came along in the late 1990s. And the way that I language that innovation is that since the advent of, uh, you know, Louis Armstrong, we've had two ways of relating to rhythm as either even or uneven pulses as straight or swung. And what Jay Dilla did was he slammed those two time fields together on his MPC, creating a rhythmic friction between straight pulses and swung pulses uh, that really didn't have a name. People called it a Dilla, a Dilla feel, a Dilla swing, but it's not swing. It's actually a combination of swung and straight and it needed a name. So I gave it a name and that's Dilla time. And it's, not just the, those combinations, because you know rock music, musicians, basically anybody influenced by Cuban music, has been introducing swing time and straight time. You know, Little Richard's band would half the band would be playing in swing time, half the band would be playing in straight time. But he, Dylan was also doing this thing with micro timings. Explain what he was doing with these tiny nudges and why that was such a big revelation to people like Questlove. Well, just to clarify something. The, the, the tension between straight and swung in our popular music prior to Dilla was really momentary, not a refined or distinct aesthetic. You know, you mentioned Little Richard. That happened in a few seconds of Tutti Frutti, right? When the drummer, I think it was Earl Palmer, was sort of fighting against Little Richard's straight rhythms on the piano with his swung rhythms. And sooner, sooner than he comes in, into line with Little Richard's straight eights. Um, and I think there have been sort of a, a, more incidental moments of, uh, you know, what you might call right, micro-rhythmic tension between straight and swung, like in Errol Gardner's piano playing and in, the, and in the work of his band in the 1950s and 1960s. But what Dilla did is very different. Um, it is, at least for popular music and popular music in the American context. And those tensions between straight and swung really do happen on a micro rhythmic level. So they're very jarring. Uh, but at the same time, you know, they're so small, sort of like, I don't know, a musical version of the princess and the pea, right? It's this very small thing that ends up making a big impression and creating sort of a larger sense of unease that was very thrilling to people like Questlove, who was at the time trying to navigate the larger tensions between uh, rigid machine music and, um, you know, a more human way of playing. And for him, uh, you know, that for him, that was, uh, you know, a, a way forward. J.D. created that way forward for him. 
And one thing that you clarified for me, because I'm pretty sure I've repeated this misapprehension multiple times in previous shows, um, but a lot of times people oversimplify what Dilla did to say that he humanized the drum machine or he turned off quantization. And quantization is the process that puts all the beats exactly on the bars. And you say there's a lot more to it than that, that if that's all he did, he would just be a drummer who happened to use a drum machine rather than a drum kit. But that you say Dilla was truly a programmer. Explain that distinction. Yeah, well, I think that the prevailing explanation of any sort of humanness created on a drum machine has been, well, he just, he, he deactivated the coarse grid that pulls errant notes onto, uh, you know, more coarse or, 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 uh, <clears throat> more coarse grids of say fourths or eighths of a note or sixteenths of a note or even 30 seconds of a note. His note positions were all over the place. And so one of the tools you can use is to turn off that coarse grid, which leaves you with a much finer grid. It's still a grid because every machine deals in ones and zeros. It deals in some kind of grid. It's just a very fine grid, like any digitization uh, process. If the grid is fine enough, um, usually the human note will find a numerical place on that very, very fine grid. But that is not the only technique that Jay Dilla used. And one of the most glaring um, proofs of that is this, this rushed snare that he pioneered in like 1998, 1999. Uh, you heard it all over his music. And the rushed snare was not a result of reflex as it would be if he were just programming freehand without quantization. It happened with regularity it was programmed and if anybody out there is familiar with the way an mpc works it has the it has two features um that are really distinctive uh especially in the 1990s its swing functions were not global meaning that you could apply swing to some sounds and not apply them to others which would alter your note positions in other words creating a new grid right, for individual sounds rather than all the sounds being on one grid. And then another feature called shift timing, where you could manually shift notes backwards and forwards. Now, in our day, right now, we have these things called digital audio workstations. We make music on our computers. We use our computer screens. We look at waveforms. We look at the grid, and we're able to nudge things around quite easily with a point and click and a mouse. But back in the 90s, that wasn't the case. Um, you know, most hip hop was made on either the SB1200 drum machine or the MPC. And it's just been the most glaring thing to me that even people who should know better, even people who've used an MPC, will not hear in that rush snare the very timing features of the MPC, which require you to quantize. Right. They require you to use those timing functions. So the analogy I often use is like we want to turn him into Luke Skywalker at the end of Star Wars, where he turns off the targeting computer and uses pure feeling to blow up the Death Star. I'm like, you know, that's 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 incomplete. 
uh, he was the guy actually who looked at the at the blueprints. He was the scientist, the nerd in Rebel Command who um, found that exhaust port for Luke Skywalker to hit, regardless of whether he had his targeting computer on or off. There is a scientist to deal with as well um, when we talk about Jay Dilla. And I think that often when we talk about music artists, but especially black artists, um, the narratives tend to focus on feeling, which is a legitimate kind of intelligence, but leave out intention and science and learning, um, which is very much a part of who Louis Armstrong was, you know, who, who Dilla was. So, I wanted to bring back the grid. I wanted to bring back the, the science and the intention part of, of what he did. He was a programmer. And let's hear one of the tracks that blew people's minds in the late 90s. This is The Far Side's Running. Farsides running. That was a track on J. Dilla's one of his first big assignments as a big time hip hop producer. He'd been discovered by Q Tip of Tribe Called Quest, brought into the fold, and then uh, Q Tip referred him to Farside, who had asked Q Tip to produce their second album after their original producer had left the group. And this is a track where uh, the bass drum is not all over the place. I would compare it to something like Blank Verse, where there's a 20-bar pattern of, of the bass drum. It doesn't repeat what it's doing for 20 bars, which is crazy. <laughs> I mean, nobody's thinking like that. That is so far out of the box. And one of the members of the group actually tried to erase it and normalize it. Tell us a little bit about that struggle um, for J. Dill to convince his peers and colleagues that what he was doing was deliberate and what something they needed to do. Well, there wasn't going to be much convincing at all on Dilla's part because he really didn't speak much. And he certainly didn't, you know, speak up in that kind of professional setting for himself. It was his first professional, you know, or one of his first professional gigs, his first time in L.A., first time working with these guys. What could he do? It was a it was an argument among members of the group. Um, and he had seen so many arguments in the few days that he was with them really almost knock down, drag out fights between them over which samplers to use, which samples to use. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure there were, there were arguments over everything. And so this, as the story goes, uh, Fat Lip of the Far Side wanted a more normal kick, as you say, a more, more kick that was sort of felt on the grid that wasn't kind of bouncing all over the place and nonlinear. And Trey, his bandmate, loved it. And he thought that Fat Lips' deed uh, was a great insult to their guest, but also an aesthetic crime. And so James got to witness Trey literally putting his body on the line to protect his rhythmic sense. And so in that sense, he wasn't, James wasn't trying to convince anyone. In, in many ways, I, I posit that that incident really convinced James that he had a sound 
Trey actually said it. That's your signature. Who wouldn't be impacted by that? Yeah, and tell us a little bit about how uh, J.D., which was Jay Dilla's original cognomen, um, how he impacted the native tongues groups, which are a tribe called Quest and De La Soul and, and associated artists. He comes into these groups, you know, I think De La was on their third album, Tribe Called Quest was on their fourth album when he first becomes involved. Tell us how he impacted those groups. And I mean, because, you know, one thing that really threw me off about J.D. Well, first off, it's the branding. His original credits were as part of a collective, the AMA, which was Q-Tip's umbrella organization for his productions. And, and J.D. is brought into that. But to me, it just seemed like an update of what the Native tongues groups had already been doing what what was it i mean how was it that dilla was so revolutionary while entering this aesthetic concept that q-tip and others had pioneered i think you called it this quest to put beauty and banging beats together yeah um well first of all i think that jd's innovations happened uh, over time like he didn't just come into the industry fully formed with all of this stuff and I believe that his chief rhythmic innovation, the thing we call Dilla time, happens a little later, right? So he comes into the business in 94. Uh, but his sort of more limping time feel doesn't reach its apex until 98, 99, right? So the first few years, he's doing things, right? He's, he's, he's messing with rhythms, uh, but he's learning how to do it, you know, as he does it, right? He's using techniques like playing freehand. He's using techniques like decelerating samples to reveal interesting little timing errors. Um, I think that his beats felt very familiar to Q-Tip, who was the person who plucked him out of obscurity uh, in 1994. And that familiarity was really about the aesthetic that Q-Tip and folks in the native tongues, and also outside of native tongues, had pioneered this sort of idea of really, really rich harmony, complex harmony and melody over banging beats, which was very different than early hip hop. I think a lot of people don't think about that, that change that really happened around 1990 with, um, you know, Benita Applebaum, I think being the most forward of all of them. So you really started to have this family of producers, right? Not only Q-Tip, but uh, Pete Rock and Large Professor and Diamond D and even to some extent, Dr. Dre, right? Um, Making things a bit more harmonically beautiful, yet still banging, right? So JD enters into that fraternity in 94-95. And in so doing, he is also working with those very groups, right? De La Soul, Busta Rhymes, Tribe Called Quest, who are at the moment uh, coming out of their prime period. And I don't say that as a way to sort of denigrate those groups. I'm saying that all periods last uh, about three years, right? Um, Louis Menon wrote a, wrote a piece in The New Yorker many years ago called The Iron Law of Stardom, where he says, you know, people can be famous for, you know, for three years, 
Uh, but if they're going to be famous for longer than that, they have to reinvent themselves for another three year cycle. And I think that goes with creativity too. And I think tribe was looking for a reinvention and JD was a way for Q-tip to inject some newness into tribe's equation. Um, and there were other reasons for that too, you know, in terms of changing the dynamic of the band and maybe uh, Q-tip coming to a very slow realization that he didn't want to be part of the band. Um, but anyway, I know that's a long winded answer to your question. I don't even know if I, I quite answered it. Um, <laughs> it was all great stuff. So no, no worries on that front. I want to cue our next track and I, I'm kind of I've got a coin toss here between two, two tracks. I, I picked out, um, to sort of illustrate a second phase of Jay Dilla's creativity. And I think I'm going to go. I'm, let me. I'm gonna let you pick. Actually, it's between Common, The Light, which was a hit single for Common, the JD producer, one of, of uh, Jay Dilla's biggest singles, and the other one is a song called "Come Get It." Um, that no, uh, I, J- I pick. Come get it. All right. Well, let's do it. This is this is uh, JD's remix of the song "Come Get It" featuring LZ. Jay Diller, rock on. Yo, I heard you was looking for me, but it's sort of like you looking to be in the wrong place, but your arms wave getting took for your things. Uh, that ice emblem, your Benjamin and your Timberland. Uh, My raps finish them like strokes to black citizens. Attack your women, friend. Pull her head to the straight like she half Indian. Collapse many men during laps around Meridian. Uh, Aim for your chest like I'm a titty man with a fetish fulfilling them with a high fist that lift like Killiam. Try niggas born shot therapy. You pop barely and fold up. You never blow up, no. And that was Come Get It. Tell us why you picked that track. Well, I think it's a great example of Dilla time. It's a great example of that time feel that uh, we were talking about. Uh, one of the more severe examples from his particular catalog. But that was a sound that people started to hear for, off of his demos in uh, 1998, 1999. And then in in 2000, they got to hear the finished work of Fantastic Volume 2 when it finally came out. Um, and also on, on Common's album as well. And people, other musicians, other producers started to imitate that time feel. Very shortly thereafter, it was beguiling to a lot of folks. And some big name folks. Uh, in fact, Janet Jackson, uh, her producers, uh, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, put out a track that had that time feel to such an extent that there are some claims that Jay Dilla was actually involved in, in the production of that. Tell us that story. How did, how did that come about? Well, there, there are claims mostly because he claimed it, right? He claimed it privately among people and he sort of alluded to it publicly, but I do not believe that that's the case. I, I believe, uh, my reporting at least, um, anybody who was involved in that record has said that uh, it was Terry Lewis and Jimmy Jam hearing the Uma remix of Sometimes by the Brand New Heavies. And of course, we know that that work was primarily done by JD. So they said, oh man, this is incredible. Uh, let's, let's kind of evoke that feeling. And one of the ways that they evoked that feeling was by playing uh, the bass line very far behind the beat 
as JD did in Sometimes. Um, and another thing, an interesting thing, was uh, Alexander Richburg, who programmed that song, he, I think he, he delayed the kick drum uh, a little bit. I think that he uh, basically pushed the kick drum with his MPC using that shift timing. Shifted it a little later, as far as I know. I know it was the kick drum that was shifted that gave the beat a kind of rolling quality, um, which in some way kind of approximates uh, the way that uh, the rhythms are on um, on Run It by the Far Side. And um, because it was inspired by the UMA, I think uh, they extended an invitation to the leader of the UMA, Q-Tip, to rhyme on that song um, and on a, on the, on the stems, you know, on the multi-tracks, you can hear Q-Tip talking to Janet, reacting to the beat. <laughs> I like this track. Right. Uh, so everything that I have heard and know uh, leads me to believe that, that that is really the case. That even though it sounds like an UMA production, that it sounds like a JD production, that it was in fact, Terry Lewis and Jimmy Jam being quite influenced by him. But why, the, the more important question is, why would J.D. intimate that he did it? Why would he tell close friends different stories about how much he had to, to do with it? It's, that's the thing that's the most fascinating to me. And, and I'm going to throw a little spoiler. It's, there's a lot in the book. This isn't going to ruin the book. But there's this one little story in there that you tell and your writing is so methodical in this. As soon as you told this story about James's father, and he uh, tried to claim to claim credit for having been involved in, in writing the Motown hit, it's a shame. When when all evidence that you can find points out that he didn't, um, and I knew as soon as I read that 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 was going to come back up. And sure enough, when uh, <laughs> <laughs> God it tell it's gone, come cold, up. baby. <laughs> i've watched enough movies i know when i'm reading a, a masterwork and i knew the craftsmanship level of what you were doing was like he wouldn't have kept this story in here if it didn't come back and so yeah very just one of those odd faded things it's almost like elvis and vernon presley one of these you know things that comes back to haunt families through generations and i just thought that was interesting kind of an aside but i want to get back to the sort of the next phase no wait wait before you oh, go, go on ahead. What, tell me about the Elvis and Vernon Presley analogy. That's fascinating to me. Well, um, you know, Vernon Presley did jail time for forging a check of $35 or something like that. And it was kind of the sing- signature crushing of his spirit as a uh, working class white trash is what you know we're called um, by our superiors in the South. And that experience of seeing his father utterly humbled – impacted the way Elvis interacted with, say, Tom Parker and the whole music business and always that yes, sir, no, sir, and would do things like let Tom Parker turn down a movie with Elia Kazan, you know, with a score by Lieber and Stoller that would have been, you know, made him Marlon Brando or whatever. So that's that's kind of how I see it as these father-son dynamics where the son repeats these dynamics that the father lived through without knowing maybe, you know, what the father had gone through, the details of it. I I know that James knew the story of his dad claiming to have written It's a Shame, but I doubt that he knew it wasn't true. And and Well, it's hard to find his father's credit on anything. Like, I found it in a few different places, 
especially with the help of uh, other scholars like Jeff Mao. But, um, you know, I think that was a, what do you, what do you call it? It's sort of like a family um, imprint, if you will, uh, a kind of um, a story that needs to be worked out and or resolved over generations and something that James ended up carrying for his father. Um, and he was very frustrated by his position in the UMA. On the one hand, Q-tip is the guy who put him on. And then on the, on the other hand, the price of being put on was to not be put on in the way that he felt he needed to be put on, meaning for people to know his name. And yet <laughs> so much of the names that James chose for himself publicly, John Doe, J.D., uh, told another tale about how he felt about being in the public eye. Fascinating. Yeah, People yeah really, fascinating, and he was really fascinating. Yeah, and and and, and I've been, fa- you know, ever since I read this book, I've really been mulling over, you know, why was he so obscure uh, among the public when he was so well known among the cognoscenti of hip hop. But let's take a quick break from our sponsor. And when we come back, I want to ask you about uh, the next phase, the neo soul phase of Jay Dilla's career. Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. So JD's been in this collective, the UMA, and he's been pro- co-producing things and, and sharing credit with Q-Tip and, and other members of Tribe Called Quest. And then he immediately gets basically into the same situation with a new group of friends and colleagues, and there's some overlap. D'Angelo is kind of in both camps. And one of the musicians that you mentioned earlier, Questlove, had first heard Jay Dilla's work with The Far Side and immediately picked up on the timing eccentricities and been blown away. Like he his instincts were so fine. He immediately knew that the timing was off on this track or what we would call it call off before Jay Dilla. But he immediately sussed out that this was deliberate and this was a big deal. And so this new collective forms are kind of around JD. And, uh, you know, you've got, uh, 
Questlove and the Roots, you've got D'Angelo, Erica Baidu is involved, Common is involved, and collectively they're called the Soulquarians. How did he get into the same situation again with a communal name credit issue? Interesting. Well, you know, it wasn't quite the same situation because it wasn't a legal team, right? It wasn't, uh, you know, the UMA was actually uh, an agreement between producers to share credit. So Aquarians is something that was more casual, but it, it is very interesting that by the time Common's album, like Water for Chocolate, comes out in early 2000, that each one of JD's credits are are stated as produced by the Soulquarians JD for the UMA. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> he can't just get a simple produced by JD credit. It, it, he's got to be owned, right? He's he's bookended in brotherhood, smothered in brotherhood. Um, and I, I think that both of those things came with good intentions. Like there is this sort of, uh, I don't know, tropiness, in our in our public discourse about music that sometimes seeps into our music journalism that somehow any any industry thing any business thing uh that that is you know somehow foisted upon an artist is impure um but in actuality what i'm trying to highlight is that james own role own responsibility in the situations he found himself in and his inability to get himself out of them and to, and to, to create clear boundaries. Right. Um, and everybody has to learn how to set boundaries for yeah. themselves. Some of them do it slow, like JD took him years to sort of set those boundaries and some do it quick, like Jay Z, right. You know, this is yeah. mine. This is yours because he thinks like that. So, it's just a result of James being a very quiet person at the core of this very enthusiastic community oriented group of people, whether it was Q-Tips, UMA, whether it was Questlove's Soulquarians. Um, and at a certain point, he, he just, he gets fed up with it all. I mean, he loves his connection with Q-Tip. He loves his connection with the Soulquarians, but uh, he also, becomes by the year 2000 really cognizant that he wants to do his own thing and even leave some of his signature sonics and rhythms behind. Yeah. And that's another interesting thing that I hadn't really thought through until reading this. Like I had always sort of, I'll be frank. I'd written off JD in this period. I, I was, you know, I was really into the native tongues early on, especially like in the Prince Paul de la Soul era. So I saw the mm -hmm. the Q-tip thing as because lawsuits kind of killed that Prince Paul or or Bomb Squad or Dust Brothers style of production, where it was just a million samples being thrown at the wall, and that was killed legally. Essentially, between that and Dr. Dre's evolution into g-funk i kind of stepped back from hip-hop for a minute just because i was kind of heartbroken about the sampling being what i thought damaged and i never realized i didn't listen to song village enough to realize that their beats sounded very much like tribe called quest but their ethos was very different much more street um 
you know, it's Detroit. They're not conscious. And, you know, Jay Dilla was not a backpack guy and even has some rants out there like, you know, I never wore a damn backpack. I'm not he's not most deaf. You know, he's, he's not the black star kind of he's not a New Yorker. He's not an underground hip hop artist. He's a street guy. And then he gets into to Neo Soul, which is this movement that I kind of wrote off at the time as this retro thing. I've always been suspicious of retro, and I've missed some big stuff because of this. And I think that I was definitely wrong about Neo Soul, like that there was a lot of a lot going on, but it was subtle, and it was JD that was bringing these innovations to it. But Neo Soul is essentially this extension of what Q-Tip had done into R&B. You know, you're you're adding more singing. I mean, people like D'Angelo and Erica Baidu. It's singer centered and, you know, with the same sweet tone, the timbre and tone from these early 70s uh, jazz funk records. And, you know, they're all into the Fender Roads and everything. But, yeah, like you said, J.D. wasn't he was into the beats and he was into the technical thing, but he wasn't a conceptualizer. He's not like RZA or somebody who has this vision. And I know how to package this art in such a way that it's going to make an impact. J.D. was kind of hapless at that. And he has this pretty disastrous period when he tries to go solo and signs a big deal with MCA records. Tell us about that and why so little came out of that deal. Well, again, it's really James' story, James' personal journey. I mean, here he is, this guy who has a very ambivalent relationship towards fame, towards uh, uh, you know, he certainly didn't have an ambivalent relationship towards money. <laughs> you know, he wanted it, and he <laughs> certainly didn't have a, an ambivalent relationship towards his creative process, which was all he lived for. But he did have a really interesting relationship to fame and to business slash boundaries, like uh, ownership, really. Like this is a guy who, and I'm just sort of, I don't know, man, I'm putting this together in my mind as we're talking about it. Uh, it really, it's the first time I've actually thought about it this way, is that he really had issues with regard to owning things, owning his name, owning his music, owning his sound. Um, it's almost like there is this continual sense of impermanence uh, or fear of impermanence. And that's why money flowed through him. He didn't save. He didn't think about that. I don't think he ever bought a house. I think all of his houses that he had in the suburbs were, were rentals, as far as I know. Um, I, cause he died without property. Right. And so when the MCA offer comes along, it's the biggest thing he's ever, uh, received, right? He gets his own recording contract to be his own artist, Jay Dilla. Then he gets a label and he can sign anybody he wants. And he signs his two best friends from middle school, Frank and Derek, Frank and Dank. And he also gets a production deal where sort of like he, he has the run of MCA to produce artists uh, for them at, at sort of a, a set price. And I think the advances were in the hundreds of thousands of dollars for this. They built him a recording studio in his house outside Detroit. And he proceeds to 
he he dives into the work, but with zero um, cognizance of the the business and the boundaries and the ownership thereof. Right? He overspends on outside producers. He overspends on recording studios when he actually has one already built for him in his house. Um, and by the time he brings it to MCA, uh, the person who signed him, Wendy Goldstein is gone. Um, he's asking them for more money to finish his album. And they're like, why are we, why are we paying other producers? We paid you to produce, you know, again, yeah. the sort of idea of not even producing for his own album. There was a, there was a, to me, it's sort of an issue of, seems to be an issue of ownership. Um, and also the fact that he didn't own this music yet, right? When you take an advance from a record company, the record company is essentially a bank that loans you money to create that music, almost like a mortgage, right? And you have to pay them back with your sales. So he wasn't even in a position, you know, to own that stuff that he was creating because he had taken such a big loan to, to create it. And he yeah. just did not have that sense of ownership. And, and let's of play anything. one more. And, yeah. Sorry to jump in. I just want to get my cue in. Yeah, um, yeah. Let's play one more yeah. track. This is a, a really fascinating track. This is a track that he took on assignment uh, it's a song by uh, Spacek, I believe is, is how you say it, a song called Eve. This is Jay Dilla's remix featuring Frank, Frank and Dank. And let's hear it, and then I'll ask you about it when I come back. the Jay Dilla remix of SpaceX Eve featuring Frank and Dank. Tell us about this track, because Jay Dilla, according to DJ House Shoes, a close friend, found this incredibly challenging to make. And yet, from the results, there's no hint of, I mean, it's prime Jay Dilla work. Why did he struggle so much with this track? Um, I think the vocal really threw him off. Um, you know, Steve SpaceX has this sort of lilting uh, I call it a cross between Curtis Mayfield and Tiny Tim, you know, very <laughs> sort of lilting, uh, halting, light vocal uh, that's very, very stylized. And I think that, you know, it made JD laugh. However, it's the things that make him laugh where he does his greatest work. You know, as, as John Yancey, the Illa J says, um, you know, we like shit that sounds funny. You know, as brothers, he's saying. And <laughs> that's what he did. I think, you know, at first he, he asked Kareem if he had any ideas for it, and Kareem didn't. So he just dove in. And I think that opportunity just gave him freedom to do anything. And my God, I mean, it really is. It's a tour de force in, I think, the year 2000 of who he had become rhythmically. 
his harmonic capabilities, his melodic capabilities, his abilities now as a singer, um, and also as a as an engineer, a sonic engineer, and a producer to be able to essentially coax that performance out of Frank and Dank to know that they would be great for the track, which they were. And this really formed, um, you know, a great, not debut for them, but uh, a great showcase for them. Yeah, but nothing really comes of the MCA period. I mean, his album is put on the shelf. Frank and Dank's album is put on the shelf. And there's a last minute switch where JD talks to Dr. Dre and sees how Dre plays instruments instead of using samples and radically redoes the album with no samples and is kind of learning how to do that. And, you know, massive frustration. The MCA deal and, you know, there's big changes in the boardrooms and, and, you know, this is sort of an illustration, once again, of the limitations of major labels in this period. I mean, even Q-Tip is getting an album shelved around this time. And so he sort of remakes himself. He, he moves out to L.A. He's having health issues. I, I don't want to get into the health issues on this show, but um, he's having health issues. And he, and he abandons his expensive studio that he's had built in his home in Detroit. He's had, you know... Uh, I think it was a fire that, that destroyed some tracks at the house. There might've been a flood and uh, the, the police, it was a flood and the police have been called in. He's been handcuffed in his own home over, you know, like a reefer, or, you know, one joint, a couple of buds, you know, just ridiculous, typical racist America stuff. But he comes out to LA and hooks up with this guy, Mad Lib and starts a whole new era of his creativity. And one thing that really fascinated me that that until you clarified it was that he was a reactive that hip-hop is this conversation between producers and his first period he's reacting to q-tips vision and in the second vision he's reacting to the groundbreaking work of another producer who was it and what was it about it that caught jd's fancy so much yeah well uh, obviously that producer is uh well there are two right there's mad lib um and then there's kanye west uh, who had been really delving into, you know, what we could call old soul samples. Um, and of course, hip hop had used old soul samples since almost the very beginning. The difference with Kanye is, is that Kanye used any part of a record. Usually producers look for an open space on a record, an instrumental space where the vocals dropped out so they could just uh, you know, have that looped up, or if there was no sort of clear loop available, you chop up certain instrumental pieces and string them together to make an instrumental bed for somebody to rap over or sing over, because it's very hard to rap over somebody else's vocals. But Kanye pioneered that sound. Kanye used, uh, I think it was a, a, a Billy Paul sample, maybe, if I'm not mistaken. I forget uh, at this point. I think for, you're uh, right, but I'm not. For Overnight Celebrity, for Twista. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of spacing right now. So uh, forgive me if I got that wrong. But, you know, that was a very strange kind of thing. In fact, the only person who'd really ever done it uh, before as an aesthetic was RZA, right? Um, and so I, I always have to credit RZA for his his particular lean into error but kanye you know presented a challenge to him not just because he was successful but also because he was from the midwest 
he was now producing his old group Slum Village. He was now producing for his partner Common. You know, Kanye was kind of coming for him, and people were even goading him about it. Oh, Kanye's coming for you. So James reacted to that with his earliest product that he created in LA, which was the Dill Withers uh, beat, beat CD that he created sometime in 2004. And, and, um, God, there's so much ground to cover. I want, I want to get to, to the, the post posthumous life of, of JD. So one last question about, um, Actually, Steph tells me it's time to cue. So this is this is the final uh, era of JD. This is uh, Lightworks from the Donuts album, and this uh, sampling of the great Raymond Scott. And that was Lightworks from Jay Dilla's Donuts album, which came out immediately following his death. And, you know, a meme that you see online a lot will have somebody, there's kind of a, a bro that's a, a meme, and he'll have a uh, Jay Dilla Save My Life t-shirt on, and then he'll say, who's Slum Village? And explain this sort of dichotomy, this split between Jay Dilla fans or JD fans and Jay Dilla fans. Why some people sort of view donuts as an outlier in his discography and not really central to what he was all about. Yeah, sure. Well, donuts was created using different tools than the MPC donuts was created mostly on pro tools, um, where he was able to, uh, time stretch certain samples to do different things with them. Um, he was also exhibiting a, a quite a lighter touch when it came to his drum sounds. He wanted his things to sound a little bit more, more raw. Um, and he was using just chunks of old records in ways that he couldn't on an MPC because he didn't have that much sampling time. So uh, Donuts was an experiment. It was just a little beat tape, uh, or it started as just a little beat tape that got expanded um, over the course of 2005 until it was finally released in February of of 2006, just three days before Jay Dilla died. And when he died, it was the thing that was in market, right? Um, New York Times had never written anything about Jay Dilla before, but they, in the obit of Jay Dilla, which was their first piece of writing on him, they also mentioned Donuts. Um, the promotional tour for Donuts ended up being sort of celebrations of Dilla. Uh, and it was so different from his earlier sound because of not only the changes in Dilla, you know, his health struggles, but also the way he was making the music, but it did alienate a lot of people who loved JD for that warm, you know, uh, offbeat Fender Rhodes, you know, deep baseline sound. Um, and yet there were a whole new crop of fans who didn't know the earlier Jay Dilla incarnation who just came into it through this brilliant album donuts. 
so donuts became his masterwork in the public eye uh and for these sort of new jay dilla fans and of course jd uh you know fans are happy to have more jd fans but their their um their picture of him, their musical picture of him was really skewed uh, to this sort of latter day material. Uh, and so that, for me, that marks the divide. It's kind of a generational divide and also one that was spurned by, spurred on by his, his sudden death. Yeah. And there's so much I wanted to get to about his influence on other artists. He's been kind of unique in hip hop and that he has exercised this real fascination on uh, jazz performers and classical musicians who've very much like Questlove, who've zeroed in on the importance of this innovation of, of these micro timing issues. And, you know, so you've got people like Robert Glasper, the jazz pianist, you've got Thundercat, the, the, the bassist, uh, that have internalized Jay Dilla's lessons. And, and you know, it's uh, people like Miguel Atwood Ferguson has done a whole suite for Ma Dukes, Ma Dukes being Jay Dilla's mother. And, you know, there's no classical composition to my knowledge that's a suite based on the work of Rizza or Timberland. Or, you know, it's, it's this very unique position. Right. And, and Donuts has this uh, similar pool where, you know, it, it, was sort of a signpost for artists like Flying Lotus and for the lo-fi hip-hop movement. And so to me, it's got this appeal to millennial, young millennials and Zoomers that his neo-soul work maybe doesn't. And so, you know, these different phases have allowed him to go on. But it's almost as if, to me, that the, the danger, and, and your work has been so important to center his music and that he's important because his music was important and here's exactly why but there's also this sort of right. cult of personality emerging around jay dilla talk about that a little bit and how much does do you see that as the biggest threat to his like true legacy being recognized mm-hmm. i don't know if i would categorize it as a threat because actually it's great to have all these jay dilla fans um and i think that the donuts phase, the Dill Withers donuts phase is really important and is really influential in a different way. He's had almost two threads, two different threads of influence like that. The rhythmic innovation of Dilla time. And then uh, this sort of um, freewheeling, disjointed sample based collage music that we now brand as lo-fi. And I don't, I don't like that that term, but we'll we'll use it just because that's what folks out there use. Um, but I think that I suppose the threat, if you want to call it that, um, is just the persistence of myths that I think get in the way of our understanding of the man and his music, like the idea that. He's just a drummer who happens to play a drum machine. You know, no, he's a programmer. He did all this stuff with intention. He's a scientist too, right? Um, uh, these ideas of Dilla as this, I don't know, humble guy, humble self-effacing guy, you know, who didn't get 
credit and he was unfairly treated by the industry. And that's actually, I don't believe that's the case. I think he was quiet, not humble. I think he seized uh, at the ways in which he didn't get credit. But in many ways, he was the person who got in his own way with regard to getting what he deserved. And we have to deal with that too. He's not a God. He's a human being, a flawed, brilliant human being. And my goodness, why, why wouldn't we want to know all that? And I guess maybe the answer to that question is that there are differences between fans and stands. And I always say fans want information and stands want worship, right? Fans yeah. want to know everything there is to know about an artist because that artist is important, the good, the bad, the ugly. And a stand will truck no disrespect, no perceived disrespect of the worshipful place that they put their demigod in. I don't think that serves anybody. Um, and so this book is a, a flag in the ground, I suppose, for the idea of truth <laughs> uh, <laughs> within the admiration. You know, there's no reason not to admire and really. And also, that's the other thing. It's like, all the myth language really gets in the way of specificity. Oh, J. Dill was so great. He was so groovy. He had this swing. Like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. He actually reinvented rhythm. He changed things in an unbelievable, unprecedented way. That's what we need to articulate. And last question. Tell us about how Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly, you know, this monumental album of the last decade, you, you say it represents the most significant reunion of the alumni of Dilla University. Who are the key players and how did Jay Dilla influence that album? Sure. Well, I think the first and most important, other than Kendrick Lamar, would be uh, Terrace Martin, who was uh, a trained musician from South Los Angeles, who also did a lot of programming and had a great... Uh, uh, he He like his idols, Battle Cat and Quick, had uh, a, it was predisposed to like the rhythmic subterfuge and looseness of JD. And so he was a big JD, Jay Dilla fan. And uh, when he began working with Kendrick, he imparted both that, that harmonic and melodic uh, complexity of jazz plus the rhythmic complexity of Dilla. But it was also folks like Taz Arnold, who was part of Sara, which was, uh, they had also worked with Dilla. Um, it was Anna Wise, the singer, who had been in the very first Dilla uh, ensemble at Berkeley College of Music when she was a student there. Uh, it was Pete Rock contributing to the album. Uh, Pete Rock was such a great mentor. And uh, in some ways, treated JD like his mentor and King, um, you know, all of these folks sort of coming together uh, in this one place. Oh, of course I failed to mention Robert Glasper who contributed so much to that album and has been an unabashed Dilla acolyte. Uh, that is what made to pimp a butterfly such a, a Dilla esque Dilla influenced piece of work. Yeah. And, and, Again, that's something I was oblivious to. I mean, I, I couldn't miss the impact of that album, but 
uh, you know, I was oblivious to the specifics and the connections to Jay Dilla. But once you're aware of it and once you listen for that, um, it's inescapable. And, uh, you know, the fingerprints are all all over that. But I want to talk about Robert Glasper. I have time for one more question, I think, a little bit. You, you tell an anecdote of when Glasper is playing jazz in New York and an older jazz musician hears what they're doing. And these are expert trained musicians who've worked very hard to keep multiple different times and so that they can play these micro lags and, and, and also jump the beat in places. Talk about that generational split and how the jazz police initially reacted to Glasper's attempts to incorporate hip hop and Dilla's teachings into his music. I don't know that the jazz police were necessarily successful. I was just thinking it's the fear of not being seen as a serious jazz artist that kept Glasper for just a while from fully embracing his particular positionality towards Dilla's influences and new rhythms. It didn't last long though. Um, there has to be a changing of the guard or things die, right? There has yeah. to be new folks to take place of the older folks. And uh, I think that story that you recall of James Spaulding, you know, going to Gosman saying, yeah, yeah, young, you really need to get on the rhythm. Like you're not, it's very <laughs> sloppy. You're not on the one. It just shows how revolutionary this particular time feel was and why we need to name it. <laughs> why we need to name it absolutely and you have done just that my guest has been dan charnas the book is dilla time the life and afterlife of jay dilla the hip-hop producer who reinvented rhythm and dan i could grill you for hours and hours there's so much richness in this book i want to thank you for this masterpiece not to blow smoke up your ass but that's what it is and about one of our most important artists so thanks so much for coming on the show and thanks more importantly for documenting the legacy of jay dilla Oh, and thank you uh, and Let It Roll for being continually uh, a, a great document of this culture of hip hop. And it's always an honor to be in conversation with you. I appreciate it. Well, thanks so much. I, I'm far from a hip hop expert, but uh, it's it's got to be covered in, in the Ballywick. So thanks, Dan, and hope to have you back. All right, bro. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes Mark Wasserman to discuss his book, Skaboom, an American ska and reggae oral history. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 